Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Glad to be joined again today by Josh Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. How are we doing over there, parent? I'm, I'm doing okay. You know, you say that. I've been talking to a lot of parents. Saying, School's almost over. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not, but we're, we're in the home stretch. You can feel it. You can feel it out there. You can feel it from the kids. You know what I heard when you said that? Wah, 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 wah. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> that That's sort of an Easter egg. We were talking about the Peanuts comic strip and how, you know, kids hear adults and, you know, also noting that adults sometimes hear each other the same way. More often than we, you'd think. Yeah. It, it's, it's not something that happened to us. It's something that we learned. I was going to say, um, and that's a good transition. <laughs> or perhaps both. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, after a busy week in, in Texas politics last week and another one ongoing as, as we record this uh, late in the morning on Tuesday, um, you know, I thought it would be a good idea to take stock of where we are in the session, but from a very specific perspective. That is, you know, you and I, Josh, have talked a lot about, you know, throughout the process, and this has to do with the way we do our jobs and, you know, answering the phone or responding to text from reporters. But there's a lot of, you know, okay, what's going to happen? Yeah. Or what do you think is going to happen? Or, you know, does this have this a going? chance? You know, like, yeah. you know, and, and look, that's a, uh, you know, the flip side of what the way we want to kind of frame this today is, you know, nobody really wants to report on what might happen. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so, 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 so in a lot of ways, uh, you know, the theme today or is uncertainty. Right. You know, and, and, you know, backing up a little bit and thinking about, you know, I think, you know, look, thinking about uncertainty, I think it's easy for us to lapse as we were talking about in the, in the run up to this, right before we turned the, the record, the recording machine on, um, you know, to think about this as a, in principle and in the abstract. And I think we'll do some of that. You know, but I mean, but it's also, I, I think, important and kind of what we're getting at today is to talk about why uncertainty should be expected. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a little bit of this that I will, will inevitably say why we should expect uncertainty to be a condition of political events and life. Right. Um, but also more specific to where we are at this point in the session. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, the questions are are multiple right now. All of which, you know, are pretty, you know, are plagued by uncertainty. Which of the flag priorities, you know, among the big three will pass and, and what won't? Uh, what's the balance of power between the big three? Uh, you know, an unstable triangle, if ever there was one. Um, just because we've seen more unstable ones doesn't mean this one is not unstable too. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, in, in a more concrete way for people that are trying to make plans, what issues – you know, might lead the governor to call a special session or what situations, um, you know, what situations might lead the lieutenant governor to carry through on his threat. And I'll put it more institutionally accurately than he did yeah. 
to put pressure on the House and the governor and and in a way that might lead to a special session. Um, you know, and kind of what, you know, what is what we're looking at right now tell us about the state of the play and, and how, in other words, how this, how will this shake out? What will this tell us about the state of play in the state as we go into the next election cycle? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, and it's easy to, you know, it's easy to, to lose charge of this. You know, what does this portend for everyone else, right? right? For the non, you know, for the non-direct participants in the, in in the process, what does it portend for life in the state? And mm-hmm. I think, you know, that sounds like a broad kind of loosey goosey description or question, but it's, I, I think it's a question that is very much in the air as we consider the cumulative effect of a lot of the very impactful legislation that was passed last session and where the current energy, particularly on the right end of the Republican Party, where that might be, I think we know where it is, and where it might push the state in this session. And I think all of that, really, that's already bleeding into the sources of uncertainty. But just, you know, for the mechanics of the process, at this stage, committees are still very active, you know, but the House is still working at a fairly leisurely pace, um, not to, you know, not to fall into the lieutenant governor's messaging, but, you know, we haven't had huge calendars in the House. Actually, I was looking today before we came up here as the, as the House was gaveling in, and there's actually a longer calendar in the House today, but there's also more committee meetings going on. But nonetheless, the House is still working at a fairly leisurely pace at bringing things to the floor. Though not we expect that. Out of the norm. Yeah, we, we should expect that, um, just as we should expect, you know, the Senate to criticize it. So, you know, given like that, even even just that narrow band of the process, that very kind of nuts and bolts kind of, yeah, there's still a ton of committee hearings. The pace of bills is uneven. There's not a lot of bills moving yet, you know, in the House, although there will be. Um, you know, the course of things is very undeter- underdetermined at this point in the process. Yeah, I think that's 100% right. And I think, you know, it's one of those things, it's natural as just human beings to to seek out certainty, to to look for information that confirms what you already know or expect or think is going or to happen. Want. Or want. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and I think, you know, part of, you know, I think our approach to this and, and part of the reason sort of, you know, the way that we're thinking about this is that, you know, and I say this to some people sometimes, like the least sexy thing about being a quote unquote expert is the fact that being an expert means you have to be honest with yourself about what you don't know. Right. Furthermore, you know, the other sort of piece about, I think, being an expert isn't running away from uncertainty, which I think is very natural. I mean, honestly, like that's the natural reaction to uncertainty. It's anxiety. And then you you move away from that. That's you know, right. definitional. But I think when you're in the sort of the position of trying to be honest about what's going on, you actually have to try to look at that uncertainty and actually start to kind of accumulate it think about how the different uncertainties work with each other. And what that does is that actually gets you to a much more, I would say, nuanced, maybe less helpful, maybe more helpful, but usually much more nuanced understanding about through these questions of what is going to happen, what is not going to happen. Because as an expert, I think people will roll their eyes when you say, well, it depends. Yeah. And they do. And I understand why. Again, we're, you know, fair we're, enough. Fair enough. But the reality is, is, you know, that it depends on what question is a, is a big question. And actually, because the legislature meets every two years, because, you know, we get to watch yeah. these various players, you know, uh, especially the big three, engage in sort of their political agenda, watch them engage in the electoral agenda, see the way these things are interacting. We get to look at the way the public opinion is inter- interacting with those things. You know, what you're fine, you know, what, by looking at these sort of questions about 
you know, sort of what are the inputs to the uncertain, you know, to these bits of uncertainty, it can actually get us a little bit further along in understanding, I think, what is and isn't going to happen, even if we can't say this is definitely going to happen or this is definitely not going to happen. Yeah, this will happen if... And and the if becomes what are we looking at? Well, and I think what navi- are the issues here that you know? Yeah, and I think navigating that is really you know it, you know you're, you, know, you if you're somebody that's whose job is to try to figure this out without, you know, your goal being to shape the outcome, right? The dynamic of the people that are involved whose job it is to shape the outcome. Mm-hmm you know, have different, you know, incentives for presenting certainty or uncertainty as they try to shape the debate and they try to shape the actual process. Right. But I would say that, you know, that may be true, but it doesn't change the underlying nature of a lot of the uncertainty. Well, no, no, you know? no. I'm not saying thing. it changes. No, it what I am saying is that it, it it's one more thing to have to navigate right. as you are saying, well, it's uncertain because, you know, I mean, somebody says, well, so-and-so says it's going to happen. Yeah, no, and, I, <laughs> and I'm not disagreeing. What I'm actually yeah. saying is that I think, you know, what, you know, it seems to me that the most, you know, effective advocates in those space are the, are probably the people who can manage, incorporate, and then act on more sources of uncertainty and more information right. and the right source and the right mix of sources of uncertainty and information to basically make a decision in what is Sorry to be in uncertain environment, right? right? Yeah. Okay, so we can we can lapse into abstraction. So let's get let's get a little like a, a little more concrete. So <laughs> look, the sources of this uncertainty are, you know, I mean, you can put them in different buckets. You know, look, some of this I think, and I think this is a good basic thing to remember. And this is kind of a, you know, government three hundred six kind of factor, but you know. You know, the process is designed to create some uncertainty. Yeah. Right. And by the process, and in particular, the legislative process. I mean, the process is designed to make it hard to pass bills. Um, you know, the process also has this this throttling of the pace of of, of consideration of legislation. Um, you know, this is a big theme when we have our, our intern training seminar at the beginning of every session. Um, you know, this is almost like one of the predominant themes when we have the interns that come participate in a conversation with the parliamentarians. You know, the constitutional order of business. I mean, I think it was Hugh Brady, the 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 what the co-parliamentarian in the House, who kind of just said, "I love the constitutional order of business," which was, you know, he's on the right he's on the right job, <laughs> right? And you know the. You know, the, 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 amusingly enough, the, the parliamentarian of the Senate, not as in love with the constitutional order in business, not hostile, but perhaps just, you know, a frenemy. Um, I'm going to get in trouble for saying that maybe. Um, well, they're, co-work, but, they're co-workers. But nonetheless, I mean, there is a structure to the way that legislation moves. We've talked about it in here before. I have to over-elaborate. You know, when, when the committees can start meeting after 30 days, you can't start, you know, bills can't move to the floor until the, the sixth, until after the 60th day. And so, you know, there is this structure that throttles the process and adds to this uncertainty because, you know, in this podcast 60 days ago, we were sitting around going, yeah, well, this is where not much is going on. <laughs> right. And so we're in the midst of this. You know, and then there's, you know, the, inst- the general system of separation of powers and checks and balances is, again, designed to not make this a straightforward process, to not make it easy to pass bills, and and for one branch to not dominate. And I think in this circumstance right now, we're seeing a lot of tremors in those principles, both in the state and nationally. Yeah. You know, 
we could, you know, maybe we'll come around to examples. But then, you know, and then and then finally in Texas, of course, the constrained time frame. You know, this just, you know, I mean, you know, you had sort of, we were talking, you know, as we discussed this before, it forces trade-offs, as you were saying. Yeah, I mean, and what's interesting is, you know, this is not unique to Texas, right? I mean, we talk about, yeah. you know, the federal government has, you know, again, a lot of these same features in terms of, you know, again, the bicameral legislature, the multiple branches, right? You know, right. all these things that make it harder to pass bills than right. you to pass You have to pass bills. a bill within a given legislative session. You have to start over if it doesn't pass. Well, it? And actually, Texas makes all those things harder because it constrains things in addition to that. Com- yeah, more compressed and more, but more compressed and more infrequent. Right, and more constrained within the compression. Right. And so within all that, exactly, it's one of those things where even though it's not unique to the Texas system, the Texas system, I mean, in some ways, you know, you could flip it around and say, boy, it's amazing they do as much as they Anything. do. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, and look, and so, you know, given all that and, and a little bit closer to the moment we're in, you know, uh, what f- falls out of that in terms of thinking about where we are here in early turning to mid-April, mm-hmm. you know, remember the calendar. We're still a little less than a month away and it, from the last day for House committees to report House bills in order to to make the deadline for the last House bill calendar. Which is a necessary step. Right. In the process. Which is part of what we're talking about. Right. And so, you know, I, you know, in terms of the way we frame this, I don't want to overstate. We, we still haven't hit the dog days of floor debate in either chamber. Right. You know, despite a couple of latest, you know, nights in the Senate so far where, you know, I think the lieutenant governor and the leadership there wanted to, well, or why, well, you know, I just strike the leadership where the lieutenant governor wanted to move some things you know, pretty fast before they got out of town for Easter and wants to stay ahead of the house. Yeah. You know, you know, so just as it was too early a couple of months ago to be thinking, you know, that just because a bill got filed, it was going to move. And we kind of beat that horse in here for (laughs) a couple of podcasts. At this point, it's still too soon to make too many judgments about what won't move. I mean, look, something that hasn't been referred to committee yet or, you know, there are some things out there that we can begin to winnow out. But, you know, it's still premature to be sure about what is going to move and what isn't in a lot of cases. Now, you know, some things are moving, so those things get bracketed. And so it's too early to draw too many conclusions about winners and losers, right? I mean, now, that points us directly to the political factors at play. Now, this is obviously, because of the contingency, a really big category. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you could say so. Right. I mean, we could, you know, we ha- I mean, this is most of what we talk about in here right. a lot of the time. So, you know, where do you want to start? Big three? Yeah, I think we should start with the big three. All right. So let's start with the competing interests of the big three. They loom pretty large here. I mean, Lieutenant Governor Patrick has been a lot of ink spilled on his influence, his power. Right. Um, you know, but I mean, to the point we're talking about here, his public profile and his priority items are pretty grounded in the agenda of the right wing of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And overlapping substantially, but interestingly, I think not completely, in his own kind of demonstrated priorities. For example, you know, his support for restructuring the ERCOT market and creating a reserve system of quote-unquote dispatchable power while de-emphasizing renewables is not something that you would go, oh, there's that right-wing agenda again, (laughs) right? That's something that he wants for his own mixture of of reasons and motivations, and that's, you know, very different than what's going on in the House. But but nonetheless, I mean, to step back, the point being, 
you know, part of what's, you know, part of what is feeding this uncertainty is the political position of Patrick vis-a-vis Speaker Phelan, who profiles very differently. Yeah. And I mean, I would even add to the the Patrick and what you were just saying about, you know, the ERCOP market. I mean, you also can't, and this is sort of idiosyncratic, but it adds to the uncertainty, you know, discount just the different sort of policy preferences, even where there is agreement. And we can, we'll yeah. talk about that between them, but, but I think, you know, the, the, well, the energy thing is a good point. The energy thing yeah. is a good example of that though, where, you know, what I would say, you know, as an outsider kind of looking in and, and not trying to, and not taking account and I'm just saying upfront, I'm not taking account of what the institutional players within this fight right. want. I'm just looking at the politics on the outside of it and the way the process works. And here's something where Lieutenant Governor has been kind of out front about wanting specific things in the energy market. And, you know, the real challenge here is something I think is kind of common. This also layers onto the uncertainty here is something this big usually takes multiple legislative sessions. If you're going to rework the energy market, rework you know, various aspects of it, right. you know, not only, you know, one they is- They did a lot last time and they're talking about doing a lot yeah, this time. And the reality is, you know, it doesn't mean that everybody on the committee, it doesn't mean that anyone in the House or the governor necessarily think that that's the way to do it, even if they agree with, you know, the politics of it, the policy of it, the right. idea, right? They may not say, yeah, you know, and I think, you know, the obvious place where you see this coming up again would be in property taxes, where there's a lot of disagreement about how to right. get there. It doesn't mean there's disagreement about doing it. Right. So anyway, you know, I mean, so and I think you can see that in the House, right? It's the speaker's taking a very different profile from the lieutenant governor, right? His list of priorities, you know, look pretty, pretty different. I mean, it's sort of it's hard for me not to think of it as kind of, you know, someone kind of holding on to that developmentalist wing and kind of saying, hey, right. well, you know, what about infrastructure? You know, what about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what I, yeah, I mean, I, you know, we were talking about this beforehand and I, you know, the speaker would probably not <laughs> love this particular characterization, I don't mean it in a mean way, no. sir. No, um, <laughs> but I, but you know, I mean, I think that you know, you know, feeling is very much kind of the conservative Texas status quo position. Yeah, here. very traditionally conservative, right? Though. In that, well, and, and even beyond whether it's yeah, I mean, it's just it's sort of you know, there's less of a jettisoning of a willingness to jettison the norms of the House mm-hmm. and of the legislature. You know, you think about the issue yeah. of democratic chairs. Now, some of this is also, you know, I mean, and, and then and then some of that is political in terms of his approach to balancing some, you know, the, the balancing act that we've talked a lot about in here um, that has shifted and that the lieutenant governor is shifting. And that is, you know, you mentioned the developmentalist kind of wing of the party, the kind of eco-devo concerns, if you will with the more red meat politics that are propelling some of the agenda, a, a bit of the agenda in in the Senate. And that's, that's what I mean by the status quo. And it kind of requires you to talk about how the status quo is dynamic, right? And that, you know, the status quo now is not what the status quo approach would have been in doesn't look like the status quo approach in, say, 2017 because of what happened in 2019 and in particular in 2021. Yeah, and I think the thing is, you know, in some strange, interesting ways, you know, the, the the politics of the House, you know, the politics of the House and the Senate in terms of, you know, their elections and differences between them, you know, are interacting in ways with institutional factors that lead to this too, right? Yeah. I mean, in the sense that, you know, Patrick basically, you know, to simplify, you know, seems to be able to go to the Senate and say, these are the issues in which I'm winning statewide and therefore these are the – this is the agenda. These are the issues we're going to pursue and for the most part – I think the senators, you know, especially the Republican, I mean, the Republican senators specifically are saying, you know, more or less, okay. Yeah. Now, 
that again makes a lot of sense. They have very big districts. Honestly, running in a state Senate district in Texas is almost like running a statewide campaign. It's bigger than a congressional district. It's a big, yeah. big space. So it's good chance that, you know, what Patrick is is saying about his political support probably mirrors a lot of, you know, the political support a lot of the majority Republican senators feel. But the House is a very different place. Phelan didn't run statewide, right? right? He ran in his district and he was elected by the membership to serve this position. And so ultimately, you'd have to expect a pretty different path on a lot of these issues. And that's sort of a mixture of the political and the institutional, right? Right. And so, you know, just even, you know, before we, you know, drag the lieutenant governor into it, or I'm sorry, the governor into it, I mean, we see, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty given those two positions, right? Right. Um, Again, something baked in, shot through with institutional politics, accentuated by the personalities involved well, at this point. And, and all that stuff comes together in some ways when you think about, you know, whereas the lieutenant governor can hold a press conference on, you know, whatever issue he wants to emphasize that day, that week, or highlight, you know, you wouldn't really expect the Speaker of the House to do that except under some pretty unusual circumstances. Yeah, because for the most part, he doesn't have the incentive to do so He's in the, the same way that the lieutenant governor does. Nor, nor really the, the support within the institution, the body, to right. do something he, he like that. He can't speak for the House in quite the way that, and that creates, you know, and that creates some interesting. And again, look, yeah. that creates a lot of space for uncertainty, right? Because on the one hand, you've got this imbalance between very clear statements of priorities on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you know, you're you're met with not silence because the actions of the house kind of speak for themselves. Right. But as you said, they take a lot longer to unfurl. So then we've got Governor Abbott, right? And you know, Governor Abbott has been outspoken on some key issues, uh, you know, that were manifest in his emergency items and and the things that he has chosen to talk about or to you know sort of profile on most most prominently uh, property taxes uh, ESAs he was visiting districts kind of you know uh, nominally promoting ESAs parental rights and of course border security though as we've noted last week and have noted repeatedly border security has been you know such a consensus point that it's oddly dropped out of a lot of the of the public discussion. Um, I'm sure we'll hear about it again. But to guess, you know, soon enough. But, you know, again, in the points where the politics are shot through with the institutional dynamics that are particular to Texas, you know, his ideal points in some of these high visibility plans, it's not entirely clear. He wants school choice. He want you know, he, um, you know, he wants... Uh, clearly a reduction in property taxes. Um, but exactly, you know, the kind of things that the House and the Senate are fighting over, his position not entirely clear in a lot of these areas. Now, we should hasten to add that we're talking about the public politics of this. There's probably more, you know, I, there is more communication going on, you know, behind the scenes in ways that are not public. Um, and, and again, that's not unusual. The governor's public role in the middle of this middle period of the session is typically fairly low profile because, again, talking about incentives, when things aren't ironed out in the legislature, there's really not much point unless you have a really strong position in siding with one aspect, you know, one one house or or one set of proposals on the other. And and this has certainly been the case with Governor Abbott historically. Now, he will, you know, he may very well come down more firmly in some areas as we get closer to the end and the threat of vetoes and special sessions becomes more immediate and more present to the players and to the public. Mm -hmm. But right now, 
you know, a lot of the signaling is happening out of the public view. Yeah, I mean, I think right. if, if the governor thought that he had the juice or the political capital to, to significantly, you know, tip the scales one way or another on a particular policy. I would say, I would say juice, political capital, and, well, juice, let's, let's operationalize juice as institutional leverage. Institu- well, yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know. Not, or add institutional leverage. Well, I was thinking, you know, I mean, I, the institutional leverage piece, I see kind of the other things you were citing yeah. later in the session. You start talking about veto threats when you start, you know dangling some carrots and some sticks around, that kind of thing, special session threats, things like that. You know, I think what I'm thinking about, you know, right now is in terms of this more about like political capital. And I think if the, if the governor were able to say, look, this, the only type of school choice program I'll accept is this one. And this is what needs to pass. There's a big risk there, which is that they don't do it. And then you look weak. Right. And, 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 you know, you're, they're blunt instruments, right? I mean, the governor's main tools are pretty blunt instruments when, you know, house and Senate, you know, players are negotiating over whether you're going to spend X, you know, X million dollars or X plus Y million of dollars on something or whether. The hold harvest is two years or five or. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, how, you know, how many pennies you're buying out of, you know, school tax, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you can't use those big weapons because, you know, it's just not, you know, and so that, you know, you got a lot of red lines that float around and people run. Bills, you know, the governor's people look at things, and and it's it's kind of baked in in a way at this stage of the process. But you know, in terms of uncertainty, it also introduces wild cards. You know, as the governor, you know, and again, not just this governor. I mean, the governor generically, as a governor, looks for other opportunities to profile depending on their political position. And you know, I think we saw this in the last weekend, frankly, with you know, an a a explainable, but still seemingly to me a little bit precipitous move on calling for the pardon of Daniel Perry, which is uh, uh, the individual who was convicted in Austin uh, for shooting somebody at a protest, at a Black Lives Matter protest. And that's somebody, you know, this person was open carrying. There's a lot of things that's a podcast unto itself. But nonetheless, the governor jumped into this and kind of said, and said, you know, I I will sign a pardon should it come to the desk. And the guy hasn't even been sentenced yet. Right. So, but that, you know, I think that really underlines, like you got the governor during the session, a lot of the things that are happening are happening out of the public view. And you are, you know, as always looking for events that you can take advantage of. This was to me a, a, an interesting one. Again, explainable in retrospect, I yeah. think. You can see where the politics of this work for the governor. But it is an example that... Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, <laughs> it, can be, it can be wild, right? So, you know, I think, you know, you look, so you look at the big three, then you kind of back up. Yeah. You know, the other big political factor here is something that we talked about at length in a couple weeks ago. We don't need to recap the whole thing on, mm. on this podcast. And that's, you know, what GOP voters want particularly primary voters, in a state where the primaries where the action is. Right. We devoted a podcast to the dynamics of public opinion Republican uh, among Republican voters two episodes back. But the takeaways are, are operative here, right? You know, I mean, you know, the agenda of the right wing of the Texas GOP doesn't generally alienate the rest of the party. We right. Found. Everybody's in the same directional boat, right? Right. It's just about, you know, intensity. And this is where, you know, the specifics of policy may or may not matter. But, you know, they're not going to be te- terribly determinative in terms of like, you know, 
some gen- you know some conservative policy that's the desire of the most far right reach of the Republican Party is not necessarily going to make many Republicans, if any, turn away from the Republican Party. Right. I mean, I, you know, I'm pretty confident that if there's no there are no further restrictions on either guns or abortion in this session, that's not going to make or break most members. Right. Right. And remember, public attention is very uneven, Extremely right? Extremely uneven. I mean, what did we find? Less than, you know, the, the share of the share oh, people, the share of, of people following the legislature like 8%. very closely is less than ten percent, yeah, and is generally less than ten. And it'll go up by the end of the session, but maybe to like fifteen percent, right? So this and, is not, you know, this is people, are, and then just remember, I mean, even the people who say they're following the session really closely, the vast majority of those people are not, you know, reading bills, they're not following committee hearings. It just means that, you know, when they pick up the paper and there's a story about the legislature, they don't skip it. Right. And so, I, you know, I, I think as we sit there and we try to figure out what's going on, one of the things that feeds this uncertainty is, you know, as that kind of suggests or, you know, that points to... You know, the implications of one-party rule in the state. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, there are very few legislators right now who worry more uh, about the general election than they do the primary. Yeah, and part of that, just to be honest, is also, you know, we're still very close to the redistricting process. And so yeah. these these are the, you know, this is not the safest these districts will ever be. And this is for Democrats and Republicans, incumbents, yeah. for both. But it's pretty near close to the safest that they would be. Right. The lines are fresh. Right. So, you know, you know, oddly enough, I mean, in this sense, Texas's place in the mosaic of kind of national politics it really looms large here. I mean, the same domestic conflicts that are and and stories that are leading national newscasts over gun violence, over abortion, even the intersection of environmental and energy policies, you know, they manifest in a very different way in this one party environment. Um, than they do in a in a national environment where things are so closely divided. Yeah, and yet and yet you know I mean again you you know just how this but and yet Texas you know I I I I, when I used to bristle at this but now I'm just sort of using it as a set piece and, and yet Texas is also this weird microcosm and it's not to say that Texas is a good representation of the country but it's a good representation of a lot of the sort of underlying. Uh, I think, you know, set pieces of the tension in politics, you know, urban versus suburban versus rural, uh, race and class issues, right. the border and immigration issues writ large, growth and, and friction. labor, growth, friction, transportation, energy use, demands, infrastructure, all that stuff here, just because of the state's size is none of none of those issues are small. Right. None of those issues are like, well, let's, you know, I, mean, I think about, you know, it's like, oh, we need a rural health program, you know, in Montana, it's not the same thing as when you're talking about it in Texas. Right. And that's true for any issue, right? And, and you know, and, and it means that, you know, the antagonisms nationally, you know, bleed into a politics that are incre- increasingly nationalized in some degrees in the state, mm-hmm. but they don't seep in all the way. And they seep it in ways that are, again, unpredictable mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of loosey-goosey and contingent. I mean, yeah. you know, if you've got this fight over... Uh, uh, the the availability of uh, medical abortion yeah, going on nationally, mm-hmm. and it seeps into it, and it kind of activates people that might you know have not been as activated a month ago, you know, given the dynamics of you know that we've been talking about, where there is a sense in which you know I think among the the mainstream leadership, I mean, we're not even hearing a lot about abortion from Lieutenant Governor Patrick. You know, it's interesting. I get a lot so, of I get a lot of um, 
calls, you know, from reporters. And, and there's sort of a set piece that I don't always disagree with, but I sometimes do, which is, you know, whenever Texas is sort of like not the first to to produce the most conservative legislation, there's this idea that sort of gets started out like, well, doesn't, you know, isn't Texas usually the leader in X? Gun rights, you know, abortion restrictions, what you know, whatever it is, voting laws. And, and you know, my answer to that is, yeah, sort of sometimes, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, you know, they have been. They have been at times, but the other, but the other side of it too is, you know, Texas is, is a much more diverse place than, you know, let's say Montana, than Kentucky, than Oklahoma, or some of, you know, some of the states that sometimes push out. Now, sometimes there's other examples like Florida where they'll jump ahead on something. You say, well, okay, that's yeah. sort of interesting. But I think that's also a reflection of the fact that, you know, again, the size, the diversity of the population, the complexity of the things means that, like, you know, we don't necessarily see Texas always taking lead on some of these things. And, and sometimes you do see, I think, legislative leaders in Texas, especially under one party rule with a certain amount of safety, say, hey, let's let's wait a session. Let's see what happens. Or we just passed something. Let's give this a little bit more time. Right. And I think that surprises people from time to time, too, because it's not – it's not conservative, again, in, in the conservative sense, but it's conservative in the sense that it's strategic. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, drawing on one of our colleagues' work a little bit, I mean, I think I would say that, you know, part of what contributes to this dynamic is, you know, the tendency, you know, that's going to be exaggerated in lopsided partisan environments to oversteer, right? Or or what, you know, to be able to to push an agenda in a direction – you know, powerfully enough that you then kind of find out in some circumstances, well, I might have gotten ahead of myself here. Yeah. And that may be what, you know, and 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 it leads to the kind of, you know, I think dynamics that you're talking about. People say, okay, well, maybe a pause is in order. Yeah. It's not, and it's not. And, a, and whether that's, yeah. you know, whether that's decision driven, you know, the, that's a mixture of decision driven by leadership, but also structural in that, you know, as we've seen, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but right? But this is, I mean, to me, in some ways, this gets like really to the heart of the matter in some ways. When you sort of look and you say, okay, there's all this legislation out there and there's probably you know, 5,000 plus bills filed and, and you know, and every, you know, measure, all of the most conservative measures that have been passed in any other state that has not, have not been passed in Texas probably have some kind of representative in that pile of, of 5,000 plus yeah. pieces of bills. But then it filters through this process, which is, you know, very considered by multiple actors, constrained institutionally. And what comes out of it is not necessarily going to be a perfect reflection of everything that's going on out there nationally sure. in the ether. And I think, you know, what's what's interesting here is that, you know, I think, you know, you know, people if anyone I know listens to this, they can they can, you know, crap on me later. But in some ways, I always find, you know, Texas to be slightly more slightly more considered and incremental in a lot of the things that it, it, that they do generally then they tend to then I would say you know people tend to give them credit for now whether that's because they're you know people are trying to make yeah. good policy or whether it's just smart politics to wait a session and i mean one thing that i think is also sort of underappreciated in terms of the uncertainty of this is that most big things take multiple sessions and so what you might find is that you know during one session, yes, something that everybody thought was going to pass or move or have a floor vote didn't have it. But the question you ask is, well, how far did it get? I mean, I think the ESAs are a good example right now. They had the, you know, the floor vote on the House during the budget amendment process, basically prohibiting the use of funds for any voucher-like program, including ESAs. Right. And what and you know and that that amendment 
passed or was was concluded, which right, which was seen as a big blow, quote unquote, to the lieutenant governor, to the you know, to the governor. And then the governor spokesperson said, "Well, you know, last time there were about 115 votes for this, and this time there were about 86 or something." You know, so yeah. around that. that ball. Well, you have to, the, the the people that were present not voting fuzzy those numbers. Yeah, but but I mean, but, but I think the governor's point is. But the governor's point is, you'd say. Yeah, yeah, that's fine, but but ultimately say yeah, there's movement there, so that's but that's kind of what we see in a lot of things, especially a lot of the the big stuff, right? Yeah. And so that's another sort of sort of piece of this that you know all these institutional factors mean that you know just because you know Oklahoma has passed a particular law doesn't mean that Texas is going to turn around and do what Oklahoma did, right? And I I think you know another you know the another dimension of all this uncertainty is a certain amount of you know. You know, gradualism versus sudden change. And, you know, the expectation is, you know, particularly from people, you know, either advocates or in the media, you know, people would like less ambiguous indicators of change yeah. than they generally get. Sure. I, I would. And for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> yeah. Some of it's, yeah, just cognitive and psychological. <laughs> yeah. Some of it is, you know, professional journalism. I mean, you know, a, a conflict, you know, a, a story with clear con- conflicts over clear stakes much better, much easier to, for your reader to understand, much easier to write mm-hmm. than, you know, a multidimensional policy debate with a lot of alternatives within each quote-unquote side, right? And so, you know, the, that also then accentuates this sort of sense of uncertainty that's out there. Um, I had one other thing. Yeah. I, was thinking about the, I was just thinking, as we're, you know, we're just talking, I'm kind of thinking, you know, I mean, there's also sort of a I think people also tend to try to find a certain amount of path dependence, right? You're looking, you're saying this moves from this to this to this. this. But I just point out, you know, think about the nature of committee substitutes. Like if you think there's some sort of path dependence, and again, this is where you're going to say, oh, this was how the bill was filed. And then some language was adjusted in committee. And so this is what the bill looks like now. And you say, okay, so this is going to come to the floor. And if it's in the Senate, you say, well, maybe. Or maybe something completely different will come to the floor in its place. Yeah. I mean, I I think one of the things that's, you know, and this is a little, you know, sort of academic to some degree, but- you know, I think part of what gets missed is, you know, the 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 prevalence of signaling and how underdetermined signaling actually is, right? In other words, actors, advocacy groups, legislators, legislative leaders, the governor, mm-hmm. you know, they send signals, but those signals are, you know, very, you know, often, you know, very open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the early signals are often... You know, not you know, not very good predictors of exactly where we're going to wind up. They, you know, again, you mentioned path dependency. There's a certain amount of you know, there's something there. Yeah. But you know, those paths are pretty broad, with a lot of branches yet to come. And I, I guess that's one way of thinking about where we are now. You know, there are a lot of branches yet to come. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> I think that's right. I mean, I think you know, there's and some of those branches will be dead ends. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you know, I mean, the, the main thing, you know, just to try to make this a little more concrete at the end, I guess, you know, I mean, of all of this stuff, the the things that I think people can can watch the most to provide the most sort of certainty around the uncertainty is the calendar. I mean, ultimately, you know, what what bills get scheduled for hearings in committees, you know, and, and whether there's going to be time and the order, honestly, and, and the timing. Right. I mean, if you're like, you know, if you're like us and you're watching the legislature regularly, I mean, I, I sort of used to talk about this in the abstract until I watched the legislature a lot more. And now I feel like now I can feel it like, you know, it's like you look at a calendar for the day for, you know, what committee X, committee Y, it doesn't matter. Right. And you can look at that list of legislation. And you can kind of go through and say, you know, okay, like, what is this? I don't know what this means. That's like probably five minutes. <laughs> What's this? Yeah. Like, this is about, like, you know, whatever. And then you see that 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 bill and you think, oh, 
they're going to have here, you know, they're going to have a bunch of people come in. They're going to have to break to go to the floor. They're going to come back. And then some of those people will stick around and they're and like, and you know, and you say to yourself like, yeah, but they can do more. It's like, yeah, look, they can do more if they want to, but there is a limit on how much they can do. And it's called time. Right. And when you spend, you know, six hours hearing people, hearing the public come in to talk about some bill that may or may not pass, ultimately that's six hours you can't spend on something else. And, and, the, and, and, and time is generally more on the side of people that are trying to prevent something than people that are trying to achieve something. Almost always. <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, I, I think, you know, how do you tie this together? I mean, I, you know, I'm uncertain. Um, but I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the, the takeaway here is, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of the, you know, it's funny in the, in the kind of non, in the qualitative, you know, academic world, you call this contingency, right? In a more quantitatively oriented social science world, you call it uncertainty. Mm-hmm. The two kind of, you know, meld together nicely and kind of thinking, you know, if you're trying to sort of handicap things right now, it's still pretty hard, right? Particularly on the big public issues, because, you know, even though we're well more than halfway through now, um, this is where, you know, the things we were saying early on, those first few weeks, they don't really count, (laughs) you know, in terms of thinking about how far you are and, you know, things will get more clear as we come back in the next few weeks. Um, but right now, you know, there's a certain, uh, I I guess the advice is you got to live with the uncertainty because it's baked into the process. Yeah. And I think, you know, the thing is there's only a handful of, of issues where I would say you could go out there and say, okay, you know. Has the lieutenant governor made a statement on this? You know, clearly, has the governor made a clear statement? Has the speaker made a clear statement? Is it moving through the committees? And does, you know, the Republican electorate support it? And you can name, I mean, the truth is, if you want to name those issues, it's a pretty short list. You'd say it's something to do with border security. It's probably something to do with property taxes. After that, it gets pretty... And even within property taxes, we, well, you know, pro- there's yeah. still a big disagreement. But no, I think that's right. And, yeah. you know, that, you know, I think what it underlines there, I was going to go with, like, with ending on the border security kind of example, because it's the exam, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of the exception to this in a lot of ways right. that illustrates the broader point, which is, you know, border security is kind of a, th- is a thing unto itself, when it comes to Republican public opinion in particular, Mm -hmm. you know, all of the factors that we've talked about, you know, there's actually no disagreement between the big three on border security. The Republican base is unified on border security. All of the institutional and procedural signs are showing us that, you know, that's locked down. Right. And so I think the big question that we're asking and we're thinking about right now is, okay, and we've talked about this before, the idea that because there's such consensus around border security, it actually creates, you know, in some ways an unhelpful amount of freedom (laughs) beyond that. And so the big question I think becomes, you know, especially, and it's kind of for us, but I think it's for people watching the process. It's also the big question I think for the people in the process right now is what else needs to be accomplished in addition to moving ahead on border security? to make the session appear successful going into the next election cycle. Right. And the thing is, that in and of itself is is a pretty tough question to answer when so much of the energy, especially in Republican circles, is focused on immigration and the border. But that doesn't mean that other issues, yeah. you know, whether whether issues we're talking about now and even ones that we're not, aren't going to pop up as the session comes to an end and as we go along. I think, you know, the great example of this from the last session would be, you know, transgender, you know, uh, transition care for minors, right, or gender-affirming right. care for minors. That was... 
not an issue being discussed during the last legislative session in any sort of big, broad way. It was there, but not in the, yeah, not in the visibility, certainly. And then it became a big issue in Republican primaries because, the legis- again, for incumbent legislators, for their failure to address it. Now, again, they never could, I don't think that there was much, I didn't get the impression from what they did, what anyone was saying, what any of the polls going, that anyone in the process during the last session, which was very conservative and passed a lot of, knew that this would be some issue hanging out that they might get dinged on later. But the reality is we don't know what that issue is this time either or whether it is an issue or whether they right. can, the right constellation of things is going to satisfy the electorate. Now, again, to your point or to the point of the one per does any of it matter? It's a question yeah. we keep asking ourselves generally. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that issue came out of the, the primary process last time. But, you know, how broad, how widespread I think is still an open question. Well, and that's the point. It doesn't have to be widespread, but, right? I mean, it has to be. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, it has to reach a certain threshold, right? I mean, I mean, look. I mean, I got the, what I was thinking, the way that I would sort of, you know, frame this is sort of, you know, look, there are tiers of issues like that, right? That's sort of, to me, a tier that's, you know, again, a lot of uncertainty for members. Some members have to worry about that more than others, I think, yeah. on both sides. You know, but right now, I mean, if I was to say, you know, what, you know, along the lines that you were kind of wrapping up on, you know, what do I think, you know, what would I think right now has to has to pass, Yeah. right? The big question is... A property tax break, I think, has to pass. Right. I don't, you know, and so that opens up all, you know, how and for whom. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, the big question on straddling that is, and and I think your, you know, the dynamic you're describing is kind of what's at play here is have the school choice advocates cross their issue over into that category or not is a big question right um and that's where i think you know the governor's point and you know a lot of people made this point i mean you know we should give a hat tip to patrick svitek because very quickly he had the list of legislators that voted for the anti-choice amendment in 2021 but did not support it this time or voted no or present not voting and there's enough uncertainty in that decrease that you talked about from 115 to 86 with this, you know, gray, you know, gray area group to make that something of an open question. And that, and, and that actually goes back and what we're seeing now, I, I think at least in the, in the messaging is an effort on the part of the school choice advocates to make that seem less uncertain than it is. Yeah. That's the tool, right? I mean, that's the argument right now in that space. And I think it does underline, you know, I mean, you and I have talked about this both on the podcast and offline. To me, it's been one of the more pregnant questions going into this session and watching it play out. You know, I would have to handicap it right now is, and, and you know, this will pretty be moot. This may be moot by the time the we get done with this since the education committee in the house is hearing a bunch of these choice bills yeah. today. Um you know, that's one of the big questions. I, if, I had, if I had to bet right now, I would say in terms of this multi-session strategy, you know, they're, they're short the boats right now. Yeah. I mean, that's not a, you know, rocket science conclusion based on what we saw. Yeah. But they're still short enough that I, I, I don't think they can turn it. Yeah. Um, but, but they're, they're, you know, to our point, to the, to the overall theme – you know, there's still a lot of time to try to pull some more levers and and make it harder for some of those no votes to stay no. And I think, 
you know, we will see a lot of effort on that front. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what kind of levers Abbott can turn. I mean, a lot of people, some specific people have been pointing out, you know, yeah. the, his uneven support of, you know, incumbent members, you know, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if Patrick ends up trying to, you know, sabotage, let's say the budget so that right. he could, you know, if they don't have a voucher bill. But the reality is, you know, Patrick, well, Patrick waving around a big stick at the House might actually just firm up their opposition. Right. Well, and, and there's a carrot there, too. I mean, you know, having talked to some members informally, you know, the amend- one of the few amendments that did pass in the Senate extended yeah. the period of hold harmless payments, quote unquote, for the smaller school districts. Right. And that's, you know, to some degree, I mean, that, that that's just a matter of. You know, if you're in a rural district and you've been a no and you go to your superintendents and say, hey, this is what they're offering. They've made it now five years instead of three. Two. Or it's five years instead of two. You know, does that work for you? If they start, you know, if they rub their chin and then say, you know, that probably would work for me. Well, yeah. You know, then you're in a little bit of a jam. Yeah. Right? And we just don't know how any of that's going to go. And I've had members say, look, you know. At some point, you know, there are ways to make this harder, and it's basically, for the most part, with resources for the districts. Say, oh, really? Yeah, it's a, there's a number, right? Yeah. And or there, you know, it's it's a matter of numbers, and you know, as we've seen, public opinion is not clear on this, even in the rural areas. And if the whole dynamic we've been talking about, you know, buttressing this material point with decision makers is this ideological point, the whole movement about about parental rights, the erosion of faith in in the public school system, you know, all of that is, you know, very uncertain as of this moment. So with that concrete example, (laughs) um, thanks again for Josh for being here. Thanks as always to our excellent production team in the dev studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Um, Contextual data on public opinion for this and much more. Available, as always, at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. We ended on on vouchers. I should also add that, that Josh did a good job compiling and, and framing a lot of data on attitudes towards public education. That is in the blog section of that website. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with yet another re- Second Reading Podcast. Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 